Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Catholic Talk Show. We have a great episode here for you today. Is the Latin Mass more superior than the Novus Ordo? Yeah, we're going to take a look at the history of the Latin Mass and its use. We're going to look at the Novus Ordo. We're going to talk about the FSSP, the SSPX, Institute of Christ the King, and so much more. Dominus vobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo. Very good. Thank you. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. As you can see, no Ryan Delacrosse this week. He's traversing the country all over the place in the Southwest and skiing in Colorado. Or what does he do? Bronco busting? Who knows what Delacrosse does? Well, but, all I uh, know is that he's wearing my hat that I've uh, somehow <laughs> he commandeered, and then my power cable is missing from last week. So <laughs> I, I told you, I told you he was going to take it. As long so, as his phone is charged, I guess I'm happy. Yeah. So. In lieu of having Ryan Delacrosse, we have two excellent guests with us. Uh, we have Cameron O'Hearn, who is going to be producing a documentary called The Mass of the Ages, all about the Latin Mass. And we also have John Heinen from The Catholic Gentleman on uh, to discuss these things. So guys, both of you, uh, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I didn't bring anything to debate. <laughs> any like big thick books or notes but i'm excited to have a conversation it's gonna be good and and it's a fruitful conversation because there are many people who value the traditional rights of the catholic church and the novus ordo just so you know if you're like what in the world is novus ordo in latin that means the new order which is the new order of mass that was promulgated and then retranslated, and then retranslated, and then retranslated. So that's kind of what we're looking at right now. Is the traditional form of the Mass more superior than the, the new one that we are all used to? From the 60s on, we're all used to hearing Mass traditionally in most of your parish parishes that you attend. Um, but I know that Ryan Scheel and I have had many, many conversations based on this, and, and I look forward to a, a, very, a very good conversation, a constructive conversation about this beautiful topic. Yeah, um, I, I think it'd be maybe proper to call it the Mass of Pope St. Paul VI. I mean, that's really what it is, right? Uh, before that, it was essentially the Mass of Pius V, right, which goes back to the Council of Trent. Now, Council of Trent happened because of a, you know, it was the Counter-Reformation. This is right after the Reformation swept Europe. And the Council of Trent addressed so many issues, right, uh, that arose out of this really uh, troublesome and, and confusing time. And one of the things that came out of it, out of the Council of Trent, was what we now know as the Tridentine Mass, or the traditional Latin Mass, essentially. Um, and it wasn't a new invention. It was really just the codification and the standardization of the liturgical practices of the West, of the Latin West at the time. And the reason that it was so important for the council to go about doing this was because with all the, with all the disparate cultures and influences and the possibility of Protestant uh, theology or Protestant practices, getting into the mass when there was not what we have now in modern communications, it was really important to have a strict standardization 
of the mass of the rubrics of the of the calendar that way there was a unity within the latin west so that's where the tridentine mass comes from that's why it's called tridentine it comes from the old latin way of what trent is now used to be known as tridentium um so now that's where the word comes from now but you also hear the latin mass the, the traditional mass or the extraordinary form now where does the extraordinary form come from that name well that comes from really uh, from Samorum pontificum right because in that pope benedict basically said the, the the normal usage of the mass is the mass of paul the sixth the novus ordo but the extraordinary form is the 1962 missile of the Tridentine Mass. And we will get more into the missiles and the variations on that, but that's just a little brief overview of the Latin Mass. But Mass in Latin goes all the way back to Pope uh, St. Damasus in the fourth century in the 360s. So, I mean, it's not like it was invented at Trent and we're just holding on to a Renaissance archaic relic. This was the Mass throughout all of the history of the church, more or less in the West after 360. Or now, before that, it was majority of time. But, yeah. you know, you do see mass being celebrated in the vernacular early on from, you know, the Greek into the Latin. And then you also see more of a charismatic church as it relates to the scriptural foundations of liturgy that we could really deduce from scripture and from St. Paul, the Acts of the Apostles, and seeing essentially what the people of God did in that sense of the Hebrew word kahal, the gathering of the faithful people, that they came together, they sang a hymn, they shared testimonies of, of Christ. They shared testimonies. It was really a verbal passing on of these various parables, these stories surrounding the person of Jesus Christ, how the apostles are passing on these stories, and then they would break bread. Another interesting fact is that they would have communal confession, that they would confess to one another. Think about the confidior that we say at Mass. I confess to you, Almighty God, and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned. Well, in the origins of, of the church, they would absolutely confess their sins and manifest their sinfulness to one another. And, you know, that may make you feel uncomfortable thinking about, wow, what if that was, you know, occurring today? But there's something very fruitful in revealing one's vulnerability, one's, uh, you know, own sinfulness and saying, hey, pray for me, because we are not going to progress forward unless we are united of heart and we are supporting one another in an act of charity and reaching out to one another in the poverty of the flesh. In, in the sense of what we received in the liturgies this past weekend from St. Paul's scriptures to, you know, that, that sense of the Holy Spirit meets us in our weaknesses and we should meet each other in weakness as well. So, so when we're thinking about, uh, you know, the, the traditional form and, and you know, I, I'm really curious to find out uh, from John, you know, John Heinen is, is with Catholic Gentlemen. Um, and he's such a family man. You've, you've, I've known you for years, John. You inspire me so much. And I know that you go to more of these traditional uh, masses. Uh, but before we jump into it, I really want to point out something. And, you know, there's, there's, it's not that we're talking about, okay, the Latin form is more superior. Novus Ordo is more superior. We have to qualify what is superior. Is it the language? Is it the expression? Is it the liturgy? Is it the structure? How is it delivered? Because what is most superior is that God is communing with us, right, in sacramental form. So validity is still present to the church, and we are, we are definitely not yeah, in I the don't mind think, of the church. I don't think anyone on this panel will say 
that the Novus Ordo is an invalid form of the Mass because it's not. There is the, the valid consecration of the Eucharist. And really, I mean, I don't want to be so flippant, but very little else matters if Christ is truly present there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, and if you have it in Old Slavonic or if you have it in the Mozarabic rite or if you have it in Syriac or if in Coptic or, or, or even the Orthodox who do have the true presence, it doesn't, it, everything else is how you are edifying the life of the Christian and how you are glorifying and worshiping God. But the confection of the Eucharist is present in all of those forms. So I think calling any of those forms invalid is a, uh, a denial of the true presence. So let's and, just be, and I'm let's so say glad that, that we could start there, you know, because I think that's one of the most important points is, is that. Um, but curious to find out, John, you know, we've known each other for a while. I know that, uh, you know, you go to these masses that are the traditional form and just curious to find out because I always see you kind of, you know, walk in with so much grace and you keep calm. And I mean, you're, you, you could see the fruits of your prayer every time you spend time with you. So curious to hear your testimony, brother, and, and how you came into the traditional form. Yeah, thanks, Father. So uh, I was raised uh, going to Nova Sordo, uh, you know, baptized, uh, first communion, first reconciliation, confirmation, Nova Sordo, uh, St. Elizabeth Van Seton Parish there in Keller, Texas was where I got confirmed, uh, baptized in Minnesota. So I've experienced Nova Sordo across state lines. And uh, then I got married. And this was a unique uh, transformation for me outside of the sacramental um, you know, nature of marriage. But my wife was friends with a lot of people that were very comfortable calling themselves uh, rad trad or radical traditionalists. And to be honest, when I uh, met my wife, that was kind of foreign. I had received an amazing uh, liturgy at St. Mary's in New Haven, Connecticut. I did my master's at Yale. And when I was up there, the, Saint, the Dominicans uh, at St. Mary's, uh, they would do Latin mass, they would do Nova Sordo mass, uh, beautiful music. I'm a professional musician as well, so that plays a role in it. I did my master's thesis on the music uh, spoken of in the Council of Trent. So that's where I was leading towards in, in the sense of searching for reverence in the liturgy. Like what is the utmost in reverence and in, in giving to Christ and giving to him and, and really believing in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in the Eucharist and how that can be represented within the, uh, within the liturgy. So I met my wife. Uh, she's smarter than I am, uh, multiple degrees in philosophy and theology. I bet her and I can attest to that. (laughs) Yeah. And the first five years of our marriage was liturgical arguments. Mm. And it was, you know, we had both read Spirit of Liturgy. Um, She had these friends that were radical traditionists, but my wife wasn't. But because when her friends would come and stay with um, us for a period of time, you know, like a month or a few weeks, they would only go to the fraternity parish uh, down the road from where we live. And so I started getting exposed to the fraternity. And I like to say that uh, Monday Thursday or, or Holy Thursday Mass was my first um, experience with the extraordinary form. And if you've ever been to that Mass, it's two and a half hours long and two hours are on your knees and 30 minutes you know, between sitting and standing. And I was a new man. I fell head over heels in love with the extraordinary form. I, the, the, um, the form, the, uh, you know, how all the different uh, procedures were in place. It just 
really resonated with what I guess my heart and my, my soul were searching for. That being said, it was kind of a movement towards going to, uh, going to the extraordinary forum and we went to, uh, became parishioners at uh, Modern Day in uh, Dallas, uh, the fraternity parish there. And then we moved up to Kansas City and we went to uh, St. Rose Philippine Duchesne. And in fact, my second daughter is named uh, um, Gianna Rose after uh, Rose Philippine Duchesne. We went to the fraternity parish there then came down to Houston here, went to the fraternity parish here until we moved a little bit away and through a lot of prayer and a lot of um, uh, difficulty, I would say, and struggle, but really trying to follow God's will. Love the fraternity parish here. Love Father Van Fleet, an amazing man and an amazing parish there. But we started going to the personal ordinariate of the Chair of St. Peter, uh, which is the cathedral of Our Lady of Walsingham here in Houston, which is the Anglican um, it's, I guess, inappropriate to call it Anglican usage or Anglican rite, but it was um, Anglicans converted to Catholicism. And so they still have mass, uh, uh, orientum, all the, the, honestly, again, the professional musician, they have a professional choir there. Uh, we get to hear Palestrina and Lassus and Victoria wow. and, and uh, Gamdorfo. Mm. And I mean, I, the list could go on Bruckner and stuff like that, amazing choir. And they, they still do Mass, Ad Orientum, we still receive uh, Christ on the tongue. I know I'm going in all sorts of different directions, and I really want to hear Kim. No, but that, that's exactly uh, but yeah, what but I was this, asking. Is, Just like yeah, really the, the history and the line of your testimony of like how you came to practice in the traditional form. That's that's because I know that you were Novus Ordo. We've had this conversation before, and I think it would, it was, would be fruitful to really kind of hear your path and your, your testimonial tracked and but you said a couple of things that maybe our, our viewers our listeners don't really know about so ryan Sheila, could you kind of explain yeah. what fraternity like what is fraternity sure um, so john john's talking about the the priestly fraternity of saint peter or the uh fraternitas sancti petri right um and what they are is really a traditional order that celebrates and maintains the traditional use of the latin mass they were, I mean, they were part of the SSPX. The SSPX is um, canonic, canonically irregular. They are not heretical. They are not, uh, ex well, some of them are excommunicated, but those have been lifted. But it's a very difficult situation. But essentially, the FSSP broke off of the SSPX and came more closely within the fold of the church and were granted some particular rights by uh by the pope and that's that's who they are um they have their monastery out in uh is it nebraska john it is nebraska lincoln nebraska yeah yeah you and i went there together actually Praise God. very beautiful place uh, the fraternity priests are they're amazing um there's not enough of, of the fraternity parishes around otherwise i would probably attend one but there isn't one close to me and i've asked them but <laughs> I guess just like everyone else, they're not interested in coming to Cleveland. So thanks, guys. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the FSSP were the was the church's, uh, you know, response to the SSPX. So instead of you had SSPX who who was excommunicated, and then in '88 or '89, John Paul II released Ecclesia Dei, which um, authorized the FSSP as a priestly fraternity. Um, I'm, I'm not a, a scholar in all this, but I think 
I don't think it was the FSSP that broke off from the SSPX, but the FSSP was generated out of the church. Yeah, that was like the Institute of the Good Shepherd. And it, it was, yeah, essentially, this was, hey, SSPX, those who want to come back in the fold, this is the structure for which to do that. Um, and we can talk about that more in another episode, the intricacies of that. But, but ultimately, you know, this goes back to the, the liturgical reform. And, and then, you know, as you continue on, there's people that wanted to continue celebrating the Tridentine Mass. And there were a lot of people that I've encountered pastorally over the years yeah. that still bemoan the fact that, that there was a huge change. And it really shook them at their core, you mm. know, as a teenager or in their 20s where they really valued the celebration of mass as a community in the Trinitine form, no matter where they were, where, where they went. And they, if they visited this, you know, Polish parish or this Italian parish or whatever it was, they, it, it was a universal celebration. So I've heard that, I've heard that over the years. And, you know, Cameron, I'm, I'm curious to find out more. I know, I know Ryan Schill gave me a little bit of insight on, on the project that you're doing, but please give our viewers and, and myself a, a better understanding of the project that you've got coming up. And, and it sounds like it's really bearing fruit already. It is. So I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, Catholic filmmaker um, in Ohio, and I had an experience of the real presence when I was in high school. Grew up in a really good Catholic family, but I had this experience on a retreat where I met Jesus and his power and love and mercy was just poured into me. And I came to realize over the next couple of years and actually on, a, on another retreat later, kneeling in front of him, okay, if, if what we as Catholics say is true about you, Jesus, in the real presence um, in the Eucharist, then my life needs to revolve around you. Mm. Amen. This this is the most precious treasure in human history. And as long, if I can glorify you, if I can do, if I can build your kingdom, if I can get people to love you and adore you here, then I've, I've done my work. I've, I've lived a good life. I've, I'm correctly oriented in my life. And uh, uh, so I had this, you know, strong devotion to the Eucharist and finding the Latin mass um, seven years ago, so I, I haven't been going too long, um, but when I discovered the Latin Mass, it was the first time I found a home for that belief, that I, I saw priests who believed what I believed, not mm -hmm. because of what they said or what, what they communicated to me, but just because of what they did, the actions they took at the altar. Like, genuflecting before and after every time they touch the blessed sacrament or keeping their forefinger and their thumb together after the consecration and just the attention just everyone is looking where he's looking and there's this intimate moment between him and the blessed sacrament he's just so judiciously guarding every single particle of the blessed sacrament it was john chrysostom who said in the early church he said we should we should revere every particle of the host more than gold dust. And we should be more willing to lose one of our members, like our arm or our leg, than to lose one particle. So the Latin mass was like, yes, this is, this is, this is what we as Catholics believe. Um, and, you know, the Pew study came out and I, I was sitting there in adoration thinking like, why, 
not only why doesn't the world believe this is the king of the universe here still here to be adored this is his kingdom and all you see is sally over here like she's the only one here worshiping um the king of the universe is here the world should be here but more importantly catholics should be here and catholics now we know that two-thirds of them so-called catholics do not believe in the real presence even of mass going catholics Mm -hmm. only 60 percent of mass going catholics those who attend every single sunday believe so i wondered uh what am I to do about this? Like, how, how can I help? And uh, it, was, it was pretty clear that as a filmmaker with that background and uh, that I could do something about it, but the, the project seemed too big for me. You know, I had worked, I had my own video company for a handful of years and, you know, making stuff, me and a couple others, uh, I think really quality stuff for nonprofits. But this is like, this is a, a documentary we, we want to make that's going to reach millions of Catholics. And what's the name of that project? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, it's called Mass of the Ages, How Tradition Will Restore the Church. Um, and it's really drawing this connection between Lexerandi, Lex Credendi, like my mug here. Yeah, <laughs> Lexerandi, Lex Credendi. Um, dropping subliminal messages throughout our whole uh, interview. But uh, the way we worship affects what we believe, or as the catechism in paragraph 1124 says, the current catechism of the Catholic Church, as we pray, so we believe, lex orandi, lex credendi. And this has been trumpeted since the early church, you know, in the 400s. Uh, it's, it's the belief of the church that the way we pray is the engine that drives what we believe. It's the foundation to what we believe. So when I saw the Pew study, and unfortunately, the, the destructive, I would say, implementation of Vatican II, um, and we can get into that if you guys want to, but, but I saw also just a, the plummeting of, of Catholic faith, of mass attendance, of vocations, of belief in the real presence. So I, I want to draw this connection between Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, uh, with a documentary, and this isn't a documentary for trads, but trads are going to love it. <laughs> yeah. Like radical traditional Catholics, people who love tradition, they're going to love it. It's going to it's going to feature the Latin Mass in the most beautiful way we can. We're going to put pull no stops. It's going to be gorgeous. But really, our audience is the typical you know Novus Ordo attending Catholic. Because because I want to make this clear too, um, there are many holier people than me who attend Novus Ordo. There's people I look up to who attend Novus Ordo. So it's not this John like- John Paul II or Mother Teresa, not, you know, yeah. there's a lot of, there's saints that come out of the Novus Ordo as well, you know, so- I would, I would only, I agree with you, but I would only qualify that by saying that, you know, Mother Teresa born in 1910 and JP2 born in 1920, they grew up with the traditional Latin mass in their formative years. Sure. Um, but, but I agree, there's holy people who attend Novus Ordo. Uh, so this isn't like about building camps and saying one is better than the other, uh, as much as it's saying that uh, the way we pray actually does affect what we believe. And I think you can draw that connection very clearly um, at the tip, from the typical Novus Ordo parish, um, which unfortunately is far removed from 
the actual texts of Vatican II. So, and I think I think behavioral therapists would agree with you just on a psychological level as well as that you you place the behavior before the transformation. So the, you know the way in which we worship, you know, is the way where we do form our creed, you know, over over the structures of you know how we come to a belief and a devotion to the Trinity. For me personally, the creed, the Nicene Creed, has helped me to develop a very active spirituality in relationship to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit, to the Catholic Church, to the saints. And thank God for that structure, but I need time to be able to develop that spirituality. I need, I need that really to take the Nicene Creed outside of the liturgy and really immerse myself into the depths of it. But how tragic is it that I can't do that within the Mass because we have to keep the Mass confined to an hour? John Heinen was mentioning, you know, the, the Maundy Thursday, the Holy Thursday liturgy of the Trinitine Rite that radically impacted his life and, and transformed him so much that the trajectory of how he worshipped changed because he thirsted in his spirit for something more. When I find myself confined, it's, it's, you know, like I do find pockets, but they're very slim. When I have a liturgy that lasts two and a half hours, which I do because I slow down the Norbus Ordo, and then we have a period of adoration at the conclusion of it with, with exposition, which is a part of the rite of the Novus Ordo, and we have a worship service of like around five, six hours. Afterwards, yeah, you're pretty much feeling completely transformed. Yeah. But, you know, we are so pressed for time and practicality. There's so many of these uh, powers in the world that are drawing us away from liturgy, whether it be sports on Sunday. You know, like if I tried to pitch to my parishioners, hey, we're going to start having a two and a half, three hour service every Sunday. You know, I, I know for a fact there's going to be people who may be lukewarm in their faith or may say, I don't know if I can get into that type of a, of a time allotment for church. I think I'd rather go to my neighboring Catholic uh, Novus Ordo Mass. So, you know, I, I think as, as we continue this conversation, um, I, I'm really curious to find out how, uh, you know, each of you come to the Tr Tridentine Mass and really say, you know what, God deserves more of my time. My family, we want to we want to spend more time at church. We do want to spend two and a half hours or two hours in a liturgy. And and how you came to that, you know, is, is essential, especially for our viewers or listeners who are like, that's absurd. You know, when I first went to the Latin Mass, uh, you know, I'd been talking to my grandfather and, you know, like a musician, like if you want to really understand a musician, well, you would go and study their influences because then you're formed the same way that the musician you're trying to emulate was formed, right? <clears throat> and I think that's kind of what you were saying, Cameron, with how John Paul II and Mother Teresa were formed in their early stages in the traditional Latin mass. I was talking to my grandfather and he, you know, he's just, he, you know, he was a regular guy. He's like, well, this is the church I go to. And if it's in Latin, I go in Latin. If it's now, if it's in English, I go in English, whatever. But I was talking to him about tradition and the experience of him growing up in the Latin Mass. And, you know, I, I went out and found one. And when I, when I went there and I, I attended that first Mass, the realization had been almost like I was an orphan. I was an orphan that had been raised by a poor family in meager circumstances. And I had found out that I was actually 
the secret child of the king. And I had that this whole kingdom was mine and that I had been living in poverty my whole life around, you know, the, the liturgical celebration. That was my experience. And I'm like, how it edified me was so superior and significant to what I had been experiencing in the Novus Ordo, that it, it wasn't even really a comparison. The way that the, um, the liturgy is paced, the parts of it make, made so much more sense to me. The liturgical calendar, I think, is far superior to the modern liturgical calendar with, you know, Christmas tide and Epiphany tide and Septuagesima tide and, and Ember days, right? All these things liturgically take into account just so many years of tradition and the way human beings live that all of these themes, these things to me seemed like, like an explosion in my head went off that, that the, that again, that I was this orphan who had found his true family. And it's, and this is not to say again, that I won't go to a, a Novus order mass. I I'm fine with that. I, I, the, the Eucharist is properly confected there and it is Calvary. The absolute sacrifice of Christ happens at the Novus Ordo Mass. But how is it transforming and bringing people to that foot of that cross during the Mass? Probably not as well as the uh, Vatican II fathers intended. Um, And I think that's a reality. And I think there's some things that could be done. Now, I am not of the opinion, even though I attend Latin Mass, that the Latin Mass should or could even feasibly again be the standard for the West. I don't think it's possible at this point. Um, I've said before, it's easy to go from Latin to the vernacular. It's much more difficult to go from the vernacular back to the Latin. I've experienced that personally. But John, you talked about the, uh, the personal ordinariate, and I think they're very close liturgically to what I think would be the most feasible resolution to our liturgical problems and the liturgical wars of the last 50 years, which is altar rails, uh, ad orientum, uh, receiving on the tongue only, beautiful music in the vernacular, right? All the elements of reverence and of the proper glorification of God and the center focus on the Eucharist, but the vernacular. I don't, I don't know why that was never done in the first place. You know, it, it seems to me a much more common sense approach. And I love common sense. Um, and I think if you're ever going to get to a point where there is a, you know, a solution to the, the liturgical wars, it would be that. John, what, what do you, yeah. what's your experience? No, you know, cause you've been both Latin mass and, and um, ordinary. Yeah. And, and I've heard that a uh, uh, very similar statement uh, brought up a lot. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, but even you can talk about different Novus Ordo priests that are, are pushing, or, or bishops or cardinals pushing for auto orientum uh, in, in the altar rail and things like that, that would be moving in that direction, you know, moving in that and accepted by, by all or the majority and, and bring that in. But what you need is you need proper catechesis, right? You need priests who understand it and priests who are, are teaching and shepherding their, their flock to do that. Because I imagine if it gets thrown in and the priest all of a sudden turns around and, you know, says something along the lines of, well, you know, I mean, they're requiring us to do this or something along those lines, you know, then it's a downward spiral, kind of what you were talking about, you know, shifting back. And I feel like um, kind of that's how far we are. I, I've gone to 
a number of Novus Ordo masses and, and unintentionally so I become like the liturgical police or something like that for abuses. And, and I used to have to close my eyes when I really got into it um, and got into liturgy during my um, years of marriage here. And, and a lot of culpability, uh, you know, is not on a number of these priests and, you know, and, but, but just, I just bring that up as a direction of, of kind of where the church is and how we really need uh, a deeper catechesis, a deeper understanding of uh, the liturgy and of why the church did what she did in the past and why she is, you know, moving towards this and why you get these organizations. And I bring up the personal narrative here, St. Peter, Regina Chelli, the fraternity mass here. Um, and when I mentioned fraternity, again, for the listeners, that's uh, the FSSP. Both of them during the coronavirus, coming out of the coronavirus here, have been exploding. Uh, our parish is getting, every week, we have tons of new uh, families because the reverence in the liturgy has been maintained and been uh, primary. Uh, they, we will go to extraordinary lengths uh, to maintain uh, reception of Christ on the tongue or to maintain uh, kneeling, you know? And, uh, and it's, it's very interesting how it's all come to, to be, but we're just getting people moving over, the ones that were able to practice that deep reverence within their parish uh, over here that feel like coming out of the coronavirus, they haven't been able to, uh, but our parish still is, or the fraternity parish still is. So they're moving in those directions. And again, I don't mean it to pit one against another. It's very anecdotal, but it's, I think, important to, to bring up you know, that mention. A final thing that I'll say, I don't know if we'll come around to it, but as a father, it's become all the more desirable for me to only raise my kids in good liturgy. And so I am really big on, um, on making sure that my kids are constantly experiencing informed in the beauty of Christ in the liturgy and the beauty of the liturgy. And again, as a professional uh, trumpet player, I didn't mention that, but um, I would play at Catholic masses all the time, and we would be doing the communion uh, meditative, uh, you know, uh, song, and they'd want me to play some solo. <laughs> I would get into arguments with, with these uh, litur music liturgists and be like, it's a trumpet. Like, I don't play while everybody's supposed to be meditating on just having received Christ. You're not hearing this but you know when you do play the trumpet, John, is at three in the morning running down the hallways of a hotel in Mexico City playing Baby Shark on the trumpet because we've done that. <laughs> True story. So, anyways, uh, you know, and, and I, I really appreciate Cameron what you talked about with uh, the thumb and the forefinger and all of these little things because that just shows to not necessarily the negative of where we came from, but the positive of of the extraordinary farm and the things that I remember when I learned that and I started reading the rubrics, you know, and um, it was. For me, it was like mic drop. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Like this is exactly what it should be. You know, I, I was really, I was really hoping that you would get into, especially what you did, John, about your family, because I've heard you share a number of times, and and you are such a family man, and you are such an inspiration to me, and and you know, to to hear how much you benefited from the liturgy and how much this has transformed you, you want your children to experience that same level of foundation that yeah. this liturgy is, is the constancy of the work of the people from the very foundation of the apostolic church till today. And we need to participate in it as best as we possibly 
can. And I think it was a very, very valid point. I think everybody has kind of shared this as well, that, you know, when, when the implementation of Vatican II and the Novus Ordo took place, and Cameron, I'm curious to find out exactly what you said, because I think it was a very, uh, you know, it was well emphasized, but it was almost as if it was like a um, imprudent way of, of shifting everybody into a new, new liturgy, almost like aggressively. I'm trying to remember exactly what you said, Cameron. A I think you said a disastrous rollout. A disastrous rollout, something, something <laughs> like said, that. Yeah, a disastrous reconstruction, maybe something like that. And, and you know what, like, I've heard that from, from people who went through it, right? Because it was just such a jarring shift from, you know, this, this super reverent liturgy to now it's, it's becoming something different. Like there's clowns in the liturgy, people are getting dressed up, it's more theatrical. There's, you know, this one woman who's a liturgical dancer, who's everybody's focus is on, on her and she's doing a liturgical dance. It's not a communal African liturgy you know type of an offertory or something like that which i think is appropriate it, it, it's it's not that at all it becomes focused on the individual so there was a lot of abrogations and and a and a disastrous rollout um but i'm sure that there were disastrous rollouts maybe there were other pastoral plans and and i think you know when when we're talking about reverence because uh, all three of you have expressed your encounter of reverence within the traditional latin form mm. And certainly I've been to Trinitine masses as well, but you know, my encounter of reverence from Father Slavomir, for example, a Carmelite at my neighboring parish that would come up on, his, on my pastor's day off and he would celebrate mass. The way, he, the way he purified the sacred vessels slowly with devotion and reverence was incredible for me as a, a newly budding you know, follower of Christ encountering Jesus and Eucharist, encountering the word of God that, that changed my life overnight, you know, that really touched my heart. Being trained by, by a, a priest from, you know, the apostolic penitentiary in Rome, uh, who was very, very well formed of how you keep your fingers and, and how you handle the sacred vessels, how you, how you celebrate uh, you know, mass reverently, that really touched my heart as well. So reverence is, is very, very important, whether it's Novus Ordo or Trinitine Mass. And as we're considering which is more superior, I, I must confess that it is very clear to me that the Trinitine Rite is a much more superior form of reverence just in posture, structure, pace, ad orientem, you That's know, a big admission for you, Padre. I've been, I've been, I've been chipping away at you for like two years. I, um, no, <laughs> I, I was, I attended Ave Maria University, and and we had communion rails. I remember what came out of me devotionally. I came out of purely a Vatican II community, and and everybody that was formed in the '70s and '80s, you know, were my elders at Santa Maria del Mar in Flagler Beach. And I think of them fondly all the time. And I absolutely adore that community. I love them very much. That's where I had my beginning. That's where I became a youth director. But was, what was happening to me organically was I started receiving on my knees, not based out of like trying to be overly pious or I went to a Trinitine mass. It just came charismatically out of my devotion to Christ yeah. because I was spending a lot of time in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament. And he became the source and summit of my life. And, and my whole life, as Cameron mentioned, I want my whole life to revolve around him. So it really came out organically. And then when I went to Ave Maria University to visit to see, hey, maybe I'll go here and discern priesthood more formally in their pre-theologate program, 
I walked into the liturgy and I saw every one of my peers going up to a, a celebration that was celebrated at Orientum, kneeling down to receive Holy Communion in the Novus Ordo rite, celebrated in Latin with the utmost reverence. That was my first encounter of communion rails, my first encounter of people receiving on the tongue on their knees. It was the same thing I was doing. And I felt like, wow, God, this is my community. So I'm going to attend here. And then I got exposed to the Trinitine Rite and the history of the church and theology and all that other stuff. So I do have such a huge appreciation for the traditions of the Catholic Church. But I also am a priest of the Novus Ordo. I am a St. John Paul II priest. And I do appreciate uh, the liturgy itself. But when it comes to, and I, I've got to confess this as well, when it comes to the translation and the structure and the liturgy itself, the reverence, I do find all of that, the, the verbiage, to be far superior than what we have in translation. And with that, with that in mind, I just want to, because of Maundy Thursday and what John Heinen was sharing with us, I just, want to, I just want to quote the introit and the collect from this liturgy. Let's just listen to this. But it behooves us to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is our salvation, life, and resurrection by whom we are saved and delivered. May God have mercy on us and bless us. May he cause the light of his countenance to shine upon us. And may he have mercy on us, right? That's the introit. That's what's chanted yeah. before the liturgy formally begins. Then the liturgy, in nomine patris et filius spiritus sancti, dominus vobiscum, you go through the liturgy and then you have what's called the collect, which is the opening prayer, which we're used to before we sit down and listen to the readings. Listen to this collect. O God, from whom Judas received the punishment of his guilt and the thief, the reward of his confession, grant to us the full fruit of thy clemency, that even as in his passion, our Lord Jesus Christ gave to each retribution according to his merits so having cleared away our former guilt he may bestow on us the grace of his resur resurrection who with thee liveth and reigneth right and i mean clearly clearly just looking at it honestly that is a far superior translation of what we what we just kind of glance over and and say amen and sit down yeah. Right. I mean, the, the order of it, the, the delivery of it, the thought that was put into it, the way that it, it, it is, I would say, a superior, objectively, a superior expression of the sacrifice of the Mass. And, and John, you had said something earlier that for someone who bounces around, who's not you know, very strict at going only to a Latin Mass, or if that's not always available to them, is that the the almost kind of inevitable fact that you become a, a liturgy police, that if you are kind of accustomed going to the Latin mass or, or maybe a, a Byzantine rite or a ordinariate, and then you go to your kind of run of the mill and it's so terrible to say run of the mill, but your average Novus order mass. And you're just like, this is, this is kind of distracting. This is more about, you know, these, these ladies singing and playing guitar or, you know, I mean, it's very kind of willy-nilly. It's there's very little structure. It's kind of look. It's kind of boring. Mm. I mean, do you think young people are going to be nourished by that? Mm. The, with with the 
with everything available to them and the, the power and the drama of anything that they could want from stories or movements that they're going to be nourished by a bunch of 60 year olds playing guitar that sounds like the mamas and the papas and then cruising around and you know it, it's it's not there it's not working it really isn't and i, I think mean, even furthermore you know the fact that that so much of is so so much of it is dependent upon the presider's personality and the delivery of the homily and delivering a how many how many times do we hear people say oh father joe he he gives a good mass that father joe he gives a good mass you know like it's not about giving a mass you know like when you think of Padre Pio celebrating mass in his suffering of the stigmata and the emotional turmoil of him celebrating at Orientum and he had so many people and the mass would take three hours, four hours as he was weeping at the presence of the blessed sacrament, because that's his only place of consolation when he's taken on the evils of the world and the evils of fascism and the evils of, of so much of what's going on in the context of his day, offering that up as a sacrifice with Christ. It's very clear that that's what needs to happen at mass. And again, you know, another confession for me, when, when I'm celebrating four masses in the, in the weekend or five or six masses in the weekend, it, it's, it's exhausting because I feel like I have to do mm. this or that or, or try to really pull people in, meet them where they are, pull people in. Now, it's, it, it doesn't replace, like, you need to have a good homily. You have, to, you have to have a good reflection. But even if you're not a gifted preacher, you know, the mass is the mass, the celebration of the liturgy, the sacred liturgy is the celebration of the sacred liturgy. That needs to be in and of itself, the most consoling thing that we experience as Catholics day in and day out or week in and week out. And that's where we're drawing from the source and summit, not the personality of the priest. And that's I think our liturgies point. are structured that way now. That's a great point. You know, the traditional yeah. mass was very focused on the rubrics and they are what makes it beautiful powerful and edifying where mm -hmm. the Novus Ordo really is sometimes devolves into a cult of personality around the priest and the focus is now on the priest. Everyone's looking at the priest. You know, the kids think, hey, the priest is on the stage. They don't think the sanctuary where the presider is leading us in worship of the Trinity, you know? Mm -hmm. So Cameron, what are some of the things in your documentary that you're going to maybe show about the Latin Mass that people who aren't familiar with it should know? Yeah, I think it's important for people especially who don't know the Latin Mass, a lot of people go to the first Latin Mass and they're lost because like they're waiting for the priest to hold their hand and introduce the next part of the Mass, almost like an MC. Um, so a lot of people, it can be overwhelming for the first time going to Latin Mass. So we definitely want to make these elements of the Mass clear and put them in kind of an order. Excellent. So people can understand uh, what's going on. Um, in terms of like the the fundamental aspects of the Latin Mass, I think it's important for people to realize how important Latin is, how important silence is, mm. um, how important uh, Gregorian chant and polyphony are. And the other thing that, that's coming to mind as we're talking is also the importance of rubrics. Yeah. Because I, I hear I hear from a lot of people, and since, since this thing has gone public, I've had a lot of conversations. And I, I seem to get sometimes the idea that rubrics are kind of extraneous. They're kind of added on. Almost like they're a human thing that we decorate the liturgy with. 
so that it can look more beautiful or can be more beautiful to us. Whereas I think we as Catholics believe that rubrics are given to us by God. So he, to tell us how he wants to be glorified. Um, because as Catholics, we're not just concerned with what any particular Pope or Bishop is currently doing. We're concerned with scripture foundationally tradition and magisterium and uh the tradition has given us rubrics and they they've won that their time-honored hard-won rules uh they've been around some of them have been around for a thousand fifteen hundred years like you talk about the implementation of vatican ii going back to that when the the you know, Eucharistic prayers were added on and Eucharistic prayer two became the much maligned Eucharistic yeah. prayer two. Yeah. When that became the most, you know, frequented Eucharistic prayer and mass was celebrated towards the people um, and the canon of the mass, the, the, the um, Eucharistic prayer and the consecration was celebrated entirely out loud in the vernacular. People didn't realize that 1500 years of tradition were lost within a generation. So we, we want to get really clear on how rubrics are important. Um, and that's going to be a feature of the documentary. I, I have a, an analogy I've thought of that really helps me communicate how rubrics are important. Being a married man, I have four kids. When it's my wife's birthday, like I want to make it really special for her. It's not enough for her to know I love her. Like I, I need to do something. Um, and because I know my wife and because I've talked enough with my wife, I know that the most important thing on her birthday is a clean kitchen and a clean house and like time alone, that she can have time alone. Now, suppose I threw a party for her <laughs> and it's like a, we're in the backyard. I invite all our friends and it's a garden party. It's beautiful. I, I pull out all the stops, um, spend a lot of money and the dishes are still in the sink and the, you know, all that. So one says, I kind of did it how I wanted to do it. And I still have love. I'm still, still have this valid love for God. But the, the former one, the, the actual doing the dishes shows that I, I've listened to what my wife wants and I've, I've served her in that way. And I've glorified her as my wife. So when it comes to rubrics, I think there's certain things that are just time honored and they've stood the test of time. And if, if we are Catholics, we embrace tradition. We don't just look to what any Pope or Bishop or priest is doing. We look to what, what, is, what is baked into the tradition, what has been around for a long, a long time. And so I think those features are, are going to be refreshing for people to hear and to hear how important psychologically, morally, even yeah. in a catechesis sort of way, like how the liturgy is the great catechizer. Having these things all as a part of our liturgy does affect what we believe. Yeah, rubrics, we... rubrics are like, they're the failsafe. They're, they are the, the checklist of an airplane pilot before he gets in the plane. Like, you could be kind of a bad pilot or a great pilot, but if you're following the checklist, that plane's going to take off, land, and everything's going to be safe, right? They are that fail-safe. If I um, could, yes. just to add to what you're saying and the importance of rubrics, 
and I'm not a person who's ignorant to believe that prior to Vatican II, there were not liturgical abuses and there were not issues in the, in the mass. But I also know uh, pride, right? And I know our own failings. And when we have these rubrics as defined as they are in the extraordinary form, it removes a lot of the opportunity for subjectiveness and an opinion, personal opinion of a music liturgist or a priest or you know even a deacon or something like that to come into the fold. And that's why I just, uh, I really love what you're saying, Cameron, and I completely agree because of all these different little fail-safes that, you know, that uh, provide for uh, that tradition to be maintained and to be established anew, you know, in every, every mass every week. So is it tradition or is it the actual language of Latin that makes the difference? Could you take the Tridentine Mass, say it in the vernacular, and would it be as powerful and edifying? Or is there something inherent about Latin that makes it closer to God? Does God hear Latin prayers more than he hears prayers in Croatian? Does God hear a Latin prayer more than he hears a prayer in German? I couldn't say that that has to be the case, but there is something liturgically about Latin as the language of the church that is special should have the place of primacy. Cameron, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, well, the, the church has, so when we talk about, you know, what's in tradition, what has the magisterium actually said, it's interesting to note, even leading up to Vatican II, even in Vatican II, it makes the point that Latin is superior to the vernacular. As, as an objective, we're not talking about how people understand it or, you know, are participating. We, we just talk about the objective standard. So in the church's documents, Latin is the superior language. And I think it was John the 23rd who gave the reasons for that. And I'm sure it, it was enunciated earlier, but I, I can only remember a couple off the top of my head, but one is that Latin doesn't change from generation to generation. It's set. And, um, so we're not worried about the liturgy, kind of the content of the liturgy changing. Because orthodoxy um, is measured by the language of the church. When you have a greater majority of the deposit of the faith that is articulated in the language of the church, which is not Italian, it's Latin. Everything is still being written in Latin. And then orthodoxy is measured by, by the way of the expression of the fathers of the church, the tradition of the church, and that clear golden thread of orthodoxy up until this present day. Yeah. So it's not. So is it the language itself, or is it the common usage and the fact that all the chips have been pushed into this one language? If the church had adopted, uh, you know, as they have Slavonic or Greek in some areas, and all the documentation were written in that, is there something inherent? Like I've heard people, well, the devil fears Latin. Right. Is it because of the actual Latin language developed by the, you know, the intermingling of Greeks and Etruscans, or is it, or maybe whatever the you know linguists would say where it develops? Is there something inherent in Latin that makes it superior? I, I think one one thing that we're not just talking about, you know, we're not just sitting around a table, you know, we're the apostles, we're coming up with like what language should we com communicate with. It's more like we're looking back at millennia of history where the church has, this has been the language of the church. The documents are written in Latin. And uh, yeah, there, there, I, f I forgot the other point, but um, 
yeah, maybe maybe someone else. Yeah, see, and, see and that, the, that, the, that the was the case is, I was trying to make was that it is that the fact that the church has spoken Latin, mm-hmm. everything has been written in Latin, is the 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 accepted lingua franca of of scientists and of of philosophers and of mm-hmm. uh, you know ecclesial theologians and of the mass that there was a commonality between it. Now, if they had chosen, you know. Armenian or, or whatever language, it's not necessarily the language. Mm. Satan doesn't hear Latin and he's terrified of Latin. He's terrified of the orthodoxy of that language in conjunction with the whole of the history of the church. He's terrified of the church speaking her language. Right. Of power. Like yeah, and if, the, if the church had chose whatever language, that would be the power. The language itself is the same language of the Romans who crucified Jesus. Yeah. Right? It's the same language of the Latins who torched Carthage or overtook Gaul, right? There's nothing in here about Latin as a language. It's the unity of the church around that that makes it powerful. And that's what we lost with Vatican II going to so many vernaculars. We lost that unity. And that's my point on Latin not being a superior language, but it's common usage is a superior concept. And mm-hmm. I think to drive that, uh, to drive that home even more so, um, you know, I was hoping that we were going to have more of a conflicting uh, conversation today and some arguments, but uh, you know, this has been, we've kind of all been on the same, same page, but I've been really, you know, concerned about, you know, the secularization of society and, you know, looking at the history of what has happened to us as a country, as a people, as a, as a faith, as faithful followers of Christ as Catholics, you know, we've moved to such individualization and personality. We're a personality cult in a, mm-hmm. in a consumeristic culture that just wants to consume the, yeah. the qualitative essence of people's gifts and then leave the person behind, um, whether it's in the pornography industry, whether it's in the entertainment industry, whether it's in the music industry, that we are a very consumeristic culture, as opposed to prior to all of this wonderful new technology that gives us the ability to come in contact with maybe a more superior form of gifts and this singer or that singer in the old days i just went up to the street uh, you know to the square and i listened to the guy play the liar and i'm like man that was amazing man you know you saw him he was just so like it, it was it was inspiring it was subsidiarity was at orpheus its playing at was orpheus <laughs> playing at woodstock or something what was going on <laughs> bam a boy so but no it's you know like that's that's a, that's an important thing to, to realize and, and when you when you sit there and you look at Marxism, when you sit there and look at, at this philosophy that was introduced prior to the, you know, the 20th century, you know, there's clearly a sense of we need to divorce from our history. We need to divorce from tradition. We need to create our own, our own movement. You know, we, we, want, to, we want to rewrite history. We, we want to be that kind of central movement that changes everything. And it is so rooted in pride. You know, it's so rooted in pride. And that's, that's going to disconnect us from God and others, and we're never going to have a chance of forming community. Where, you know, when you look at um, how music is sung in the church today, where it really centers around maybe a cantor's voice, right? That's, that's so tragic. When, yeah. you, when you go to a, a football game or a basketball game, and, and the national anthem is being sung by one person. Oh, whoop-de-doo, Katy Perry comes and sings the national anthem. Whoop-de-doo, Beyonce comes and sings the national anthem. It's so much more inspiring when hundreds of thousands of people are singing the national anthem. It's so much more inspiring when you can consider that the lineage of the Catholic Church from the 4th century up until, you know, 
the the beautiful aspect of the 20th century in in the mid 1900s that the latin language was celebrated in traditional and and expression of of union of solidarity and and that's why i like the title of your your movie cameron you know the mass of the ages given that band of transcendence that there's something transcendent that we have there's something transcendent to the latin language and also it's it's set apart and the set apartness of what we do in the liturgy is really important if if liturgy looks like everything else i'm doing monday through saturday i don't get reoriented i don't get I don't get my foundation. I don't get my Catholic identity, which is should be countercultural. It should look different. And we have we have vessels set apart for the liturgy. We have vestments, clothing set apart. We should have music that's set apart, and mm-hmm. certainly language. What what the language we're actually using? It's actually a benefit we have that Latin is not spoken, you know, in the secular realm, in the secular arena, because when we go to mass. We should, we should have our language. It, it, it connects us not only globally, like I remember when I went to France, and I was confused because the liturgy was in French. Um, it would connect us globally, like in what we're celebrating, but also connect us historically to our, to our heritage. Mm-hmm. When you we're know, considering, so, you know, you brought up something uh, earlier, Cameron, that, that, you know, I really want to revisit. You know, you, you mentioned something along the lines that, that God gives us the rubrics, right? God gives us these rubrics. And it's not that, you know, it's our observance of the rubrics that then give us the mechanics to please God. Mm-hmm. You know, God desires a contrite heart, as the scriptures say. God desires reverence for the sacred. God desires reverence for one another. And, you know, I've seen brothers at Ave Maria attend even a Father Fessio liturgy, who's one of the more conservative Novus Ordo people I know and that I admire. And they're sitting there with the missile in the back following every rubric and, you know, not attending mass. They're sitting there, they're judging the mass. They're not receiving, right? So, you know, it's, it's important to realize that it's not our mechanics that worship God. It, it's Ecclesia Suplet. The church supplies in every circumstance, because anything that we do is going to be limited. But the best thing that we could do is to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And that is a perfection manifested in mercy and reverence and love and active charity. That's what what we're called to. Suppose I bring it back to my analogy really quick, and then Ryan, maybe you can jump off on top of this, is uh, with my wife on her birthday, me doing the dishes is not what gets her to love me, right? It's not like if I didn't do the dishes, I would lose her love. Um, but it's more like, what's the best way I can love her? And I only know that from what she has said to me. Mm-hmm. Um, or like, you know, our anniversary is coming up. I don't have to do anything for the anniversary f- for her to love me. But I do it out of just, I want to glorify her in the best way I can. So I think that's, that's and, what. And I think using the word reverence in relationship to that analogy, you're reverencing her because of your knowledge of her. You know, you have come to know her and you know how to respond to her. There are structures that are given by the church in rubrics that help to structure a greater reverence. And that, that's ultimately what we're getting to is when you're putting the worship, you know, before 
you know, anything and you're, and you're following the rubrics, you're following them in reverence to what is being entrusted to you. And you're following them in order to reverence God and treat the liturgy as she ought to be treated. I had a, I had a brother of mine. He's a former FBI, former, you know, intelligent agent, like guys, brilliant. I, I get his counsel all the time. I ask him all sorts of questions, but you know, he, he made mention to me a couple of times, like, yeah, man, that priest, cause he's a convert, that priest celebrates such a beautiful mass. And I've got to say, he believes what he celebrates. And you know, when he says, I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is the lamb of God, this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, our Lord, let us come to the altar. He's clearly changing the rubrics, clearly changing the wording of the Novus Ordo, clearly implementing that subjectivity that John Heinen was, was saying. Is he delivering a pastoral point? Yes. Are people responding to it? Yes. Is it, is it bringing people into a more reverent form? Maybe, probably. It depends if people are sitting there as, as, as rupercists and saying, hey, you're abrogating the liturgy and now I'm upset and I'm angry and I'm going to be telling everybody on my social media page that this is a Catholic church you don't want to attend, no matter what you're coming to. But the point I'm trying to make is we don't need subjectivity in a properly rubricized form of the liturgy because the liturgy itself, especially the Trinitine Rite, provides that sense of, wow, this is the Lamb of God. This is the one who was slain, you know? And, and that's what I do appreciate about the structures of, of the liturgy that we're talking about today. Yeah. Our Lord said that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the rubrics. The rubrics were made for men because they make sense, because they take into account human beings and the way that they respond. They are there not to be followed slavishly because the rubrics are to be worshipped. The rubrics help you to worship whom you should be properly worshipping. And that, I think that's a distinction that a lot of time in the culture wars and the liturgy wars gets missed is that people start to overemphasize, overemphasize the purpose of the rubrics as if the rubrics themselves were something to be um, put as its own entity. They're not. The rubrics are there to orient you to the worship of the sacrificed God, of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist on the bloody representation of Calvary on the altar. That's what they're there for. And that's why they're so important. Now, one last thing, you know, and I, I got two last things, actually. So the subtitle, last of, things. <laughs> the subtitle of your movie, Cameron, is How Tradition Will Save the Church. Is that correct? We'll restore the church. We'll restore the church. Um, why do you believe that to be so? And I don't disagree, but I maybe have a little bit of a different nuance where I think personally being maybe a more um, pragmatic person, I don't think tradition will restore the church. I think that tradition is all that's going to be left of the church after the waves of modernity eroded away. And the only thing that left standing is tradition. Will it restore the church? I would hope so. But my pessimistic view is traditions that all that will be left. Yeah, I, I mean, th this needs to be nuanced a little bit. I do believe it. I do believe tradition will restore the church. I think the future of the Novus Ordo will be traditional <laughs> Novus Ordo. There'll be priests who are celebrating according to the actual rubrics and not, you know, introducing their own, you know, piety into the liturgy. Right. Um, 
I also think it's, it's going to be a long journey, but eventually, <laughs> I don't know how long this is going to take, but the rubrics need to, need to correspond more with, with the actual tradition of the church, actually Vatican II. I'm not talking about Vatican II versus other councils. I'm just talking about Vatican II versus its implementation. So j just a quick quote about uh, the actual current state of the rubrics as we have them um, from Cardinal Ratzinger at the time who became Pope Benedict XVI. And of course, Benedict wanted to interpret Vatican II in harmony with the tradition that came before it called the hermeneutic of continuity, but this is what he said about the actual books that came out of the council. What happened after the council's, council was altogether different. Instead of a liturgy as a fruit of continuous development, a fabricated liturgy was put in its place. A living growing process was abandoned and the fabrication started. There, were, there was no further wish to continue the organic evolution and maturation of the living being throughout the centuries, and they were replaced as if in a technical production by a fabrication, a banal product of the moment. So there's the history after Vatican II is very complicated and it needs more than a documentary to talk about it. And uh, it's more than I know, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but, but the reason I'm making this documentary is because when you see the, the implementation of this technical production, this, this fabrication, as Ratzinger says, you see also this, the plummeting of, of Catholic faith. So tradition will restore the church, but it doesn't have to just be through one, you know, liturgy. Like we've been talking about the Anglican ordinariate. Um, but as soon as we, through generations, centuries, come back to Vatican II's original intention, we can restore the rubrics, and it's only going to be restored by looking at tradition. The, the documents surrounding Vatican II speak about the importance of Latin and silence and Gregorian chant, and for some reason the rubrics abandon these things. So tradition will restore the church eventually, yes, through the Novus Ordo becoming more traditional. But I believe that that problem is too big for me. It's too big for any of us right now. But next Sunday, I can go to a traditional Latin mass, which embraces tradition and is a sure foundation for my faith in a time of tumultuous, you know, disarray in the culture. Where, Don, uh, you spoke about that earlier, that after the shutdowns from coronavirus, um, me and you have had this conversation privately that a lot of these Novus Ordo churches, a significant portion of the people will not be coming back. Either they will find other uh, liturgies that um, are more nourishing, that maintain throughout all this, or the people that were lukewarm, they're just not coming back. I mean, this is kind of um, forcing the issue that would have probably would have happened over the course of the next 10 years and making it happen much quicker. John, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. I think that there is the obligation to go to mass is, is so important to our human nature. There are many a Sundays that I wake up after having um, dealt with a, a sick child or I have uh, 
stayed up late on some project or something like that. I'm exhausted. My kids are driving me crazy. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to mass. Like the thought of missing mass uh, is, is kind of uh, void from my thought process. That being said, if it wasn't and the obligations were removed to go to mass and I wasn't sinning or it wasn't ever stated, which I think a lot of these individuals who are lukewarm, like you say, are now experiencing. It's like, well, now we've got this sort of like um, virtual and you can attend. And I, I feel like we're, we're looking for a very downturn of, of society as a whole of a lot of the cafeteria Catholics, a lot of lukewarm Catholics, even those that were going to mass every Sunday, often going out of obligation or it was the right thing to do. Now they found this out. And um, it is a big concern. It's a huge prayer of mine. I'm already seeing the situation at our parish, which is not suffering um, because of its, you know, its, its reverence, its parishioner base, and, you know, um, that nature. So we're seeing those that are experiencing it already within their Novus Ordo. I was talking to somebody yesterday at Mass, right after Mass, just met her for the first time, and that's exactly what she said. She said that she was going to this parish uh, here in Houston, and she said they didn't even make an attempt to, to stream online during the coronavirus. They just posted on their website, hey, there's this parish down the road, and this parish down the road, and this parish down the road, that you can watch the, the online streaming. And she said, so we were disconnected from our parish community almost completely. And then when we are coming back, they're doing the one mass on Sunday. She said, there's so many rules that are, are basically prioritizing, you know, coronavirus over, um, over Christ. And she said that they were just struggling and they had a lot of prayers and they decided to switch to a parish that it's still very much Christ-centered on Sundays when we're at. And, and a lot of these people going to Novus Ordo who weren't being nourished by it and then have not went to mass for three months and their life isn't significantly different, well, they're not going to go back to going to mass anymore. I mean, I, if you I don't think know it's not going to I don't know if I agree with that, though. I mean, and I've, I've heard it a lot, you know, and... and yeah, but you've been incredibly, see... you have been incredibly active in your parish keeping people involved. You've been incredibly active with online masses and, and, and trying to make sure that throughout this, people are staying attached to the bosom of the church. Most aren't doing that, Padre. They're not. Yeah, but I mean, when you have when you have liberal media or even just media in general, who's in a constant manner pumping fear into into people's brains and, you know, giving accommodations for everybody to go to uh, everything from the grocery store to Planned Parenthood, you know, like, uh, you know, it, it's it's challenging for people because we are a herd based people. And, you know, that ancient, that ancient hymn, are we like sheep? Doo -doo -doo. We are like sheep. And, and we are, we are led by powerful voices uh, sometimes, but, you know, the, the church's voice is representative of Christ. And I trust the fact that, you know, when the, when the voice of truth and, and that, that beautiful, inspiring word of God is being proclaimed from the church properly as it, as it ought to, that is going to ultimately bring people back into the fold when they overcome their fears. Right now, fear is the dominant force in society and in the world. And, and granted, you know, you know, will this purify us? Absolutely. Is it labor pains for a new birth? Absolutely. I believe that wholeheartedly. 
you know, where, what we do now, I have found this time to be a perfect catalyst and opportunity to make changes within the structures of the church so that we are moving in a direction that is effort, you know, making every effort for reverence, changing some liturgical schedules, changing different things that have helped us in the overall process. And, you know, I, I do think that tradition is such a valuable thing. I don't think, I don't think it's going to, um, you know, where we like return back to a former way of liturgical expression. I think that's probably almost impossible. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's ever been done in the history of the church and I don't think it will be done. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that I don't value the Trinitine Mass. I really do value the Trinitine Mass, and I think it should be made more available. But, you know, as as we move forward as a community, I am a firm believer of St. Hunapara Sara, and I don't care how many statues that they tear down, because the man said something that is the truest thing that I've ever heard, siempre adelante, nunca atrás, always forward, never turn back. We need to learn from the mistakes of, of what we've done, of rolling out Vatican II. But we need to embrace Vatican II and the instruction that Cameron's been expressing throughout the show, because Vatican II is very, very clear as it relates to Latin. Vatican II is very, very clear as it relates to chant and, and these beautiful expressions in the traditions of the church that we can very much apply in our week to week. But we've got to emerge into that practice as we come out of this fear and overcome our fear into the greater practice of reverence and contrition before our God, the God of justice and mercy. So we thank our, we thank our viewers. I thank you so much, Cameron and John Heinen joining us. Uh, Before we go, please, please, Cameron, give us every way that we can get in touch with you and exactly how we can get in touch with your documentary and when the release date is of, of your show. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Father and Ryan and John, good to, good to talk with you too. Um, so we're on theliturgy.org. And to find our Kickstarter, which has what I think is a really excellent short video that just explains the why behind what we're doing, it's, it's easy to remember. It's theliturgy.org forward slash Kickstarter. So we're running a Kickstarter for the rest of the week. We end on Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. We have some uh, aggressive stretch goals that will help us make this documentary truly universal by traveling, you know, internationally and filming with just the best experts we can find and filming at the most beautiful churches. So the liturgy.org is our website. And then you can find us on Facebook at liturgy film. We're also on Twitter at liturgy film. Um, And then there's contact info on that and the release date. So we, we're going to do this right. We think liturgy deserves the best we can give it. So we're not going to rush it. It's not going to be me running around with the video camera. It's going to be, we're going to have a crew. We're going to have, it's going to be a legit production. So we're, we're wrapping up the Kickstarter this week and we're going to jump right into pre-production and story finding. Um, you can expect the film to drop next, not this Christmas, but the following Christmas. And plenty of goodies along the way through our social media behind the scenes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Cameron, and I think thank you. for people who don't know, I mean, it's astounding uh, the response that the public has given to the mass of the ages. I mean, you've raised over a hundred thousand dollars on this, which is an astounding figure for an independent Catholic documentary. And yeah. I think that shows this, the, <laughs> the real ache in the heart that everybody has for right. tradition. So again, congratulations on that. You know, we've been sharing this out, you know, on, on, on the pages that I run on 
Catholic talk show and on you Catholic and all these things. So we're supporters. Can't wait to see it. Um, really excited about it. Now, John, why don't you also tell everyone where they could uh, learn more about uh, the Catholic gentleman? Yeah. And I'm just so excited to be here as well. I just, what a great way to start uh, our, our week. And I think uh, what Cameron said right at the beginning, I think before we started airing is that, you know, this, this is our job. Like how incredible is this? And I love you, Father, and you, Ryan, and Cameron. It's been so great to have this conversation. So yeah, with the Catholic Gentleman, obviously you can go to uh, catholicgentleman.net or catholicgentleman.com. You can catch us out on Facebook um, with Catholic Gentleman or on Instagram, Catholic Gent. And so you check us out in those places. And uh, Sam Guzman's done just uh, an amazing job over the years building up Catholic Gentleman to what it is today. And so um, we're all very blessed uh, to be here. All right. And Padre, why don't you... Uh... Leave us out here with a prayer, and Please, yeah. let's let's see some of that uh, some of that liturgical training you've got. Let's see what. <laughs> let's have a nice I think I'm going to rely on the charismatic edge of my spirituality on on that one. In All the right. name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, we seek to reverence you with contrite heart. Strengthen us in the power of your Holy Spirit with the gifts of faith, hope, and love. Structure our efforts through proper rubrics, so that we may respond to you, knowledgeable of you, as you know us perfectly. Move our hearts into greater orthodoxy of practice. Help us to complete our act of worship through the power of your spirit. Bless and prosper the work of our hands for the greater glory of your name, as we desire wholeheartedly to serve you with all that you give us, with our gifts, with our intelligence, with our might and strength, with our heart, and all of the resources that you have given us. Strengthen our path forward, each of us, all of our viewers, all of our listeners, those who connect with us and help us along the way, that we may be one of heart in our worship of you, the Godhead, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. To our viewers, thank you so much for your support, especially to our Patreons. If you want to continue to support our show financially, please go to patreon.com forward slash the Catholic Talk Show. There, you'll, there you will see every way that you could support us financially. And we have some nice little memorabilia that we want to share with you. The only way that we can continue the show is by your generosity. So we thank you for considering being a Patreon to the Catholic Talk Show. To our friends on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we will see you this week on all the comment feeds. And please share your perspective in the comments about which you think is more superior and why, the Novus Ordo or the Trinitine Rite. And hopefully we will be reverent of each other's Be comments. nice. <laughs> yeah, be nice, right? We were actually talking before the show how uncharitable some people are on these comment feeds. We want to be charitable, right? That's the only way that we're going to build anything. And the, the world and especially the, you know, our, our social media channels should help us with the marketplace of ideas, but you can't really form a good conscientious outcome if you're not really listening to each other. So let's, let's really listen to each other and comment constructively, and we will see you next week. God bless.